0: Hey gang, this week's episode is brought to you by Binge Sesh, a new podcast from the Los Angeles Times. They're talking about Winning Time, the HBO special series, and awesome at that, just renewed for a second season, about the Magic era, Magic Johnson era, that is, Lakers the Los Angeles Lakers, in all their glory. You want to hear the real story? Well, join LA Times TV editor Matt Brennan and professional basketball player Kareem Maddox, and you'll hear from actors, TV writers, professors, experts from the Times themselves, people who were there, and the real story behind winning time and the Lakers of the Magic Johnson era. Listen to it now. It's Binge Sesh, S-E-S-H, wherever you get podcasts on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get them. Give a listen now. And now here's our show coming up.
1: Make way, here comes a bunch of young guns. Johnson Alley. Oh! Shot lost my morning! The Charlotte Hornets were a thing.
2: You were not at a Charlotte Hornets game. You were
1: missing out on something. It's a three-
2: We had Rex Chapman, Kendall Gill, Phil Curry. It was different personalities top to bottom.
1: Of course. Larry Johnson, Grandmama, Alonzo Mourning, Muggsy Bogues.
2: We had national appeal. But it was something unique about the Purple and Teal.
1: It was in to be a Hornet fan. That team really changed everything for small market teams.
0: is probably better known for stock cars and college basketball. But today, pro basketball takes center stage as Charlotte enters a new era. And so Charlotte and Miami will join the NBA fray for the 1988-89 season.
1: Honestly, I did not know where Charlotte was. Where is that? Is that West Virginia? Is that Charlottesville? Or... No, it's, it's North Carolina. Oh, okay. North Carolinians knew... Uh, basketball, but they didn't really know the NBA.
2: This was our first major league team.
1: I hadn't seen Charlotte, didn't know much about Charlotte other than it was a lot warmer than Detroit. It is a celebration of a dream that's turned into a reality.
2: I think it'll work. I don't think I'm convinced it will. And the fact that uh, we've had uh, 13,700 people to buy specific seats tells me that uh, it's gonna work.
1: These people, who I always thought were college fans, seemed to be really turned on about this team.
3: They are. This is the first major league thing to happen to the city
1: of Charlotte and to the state of North Carolina.
0: I think there were a lot of guys, whether you were draft pick or
1: free agent, or you were involved in the expansion draft, that guys wanted to prove something. I think we ended up with a good group of guys. Our problem was we just weren't very talented.
0: there's the overview of the Charlotte Coliseum it is the largest arena now in the NBA 23,500 fans
1: you know and the place was hyped up they were excited and we didn't know exactly what to expect because this is more of a college type of town
0: all right let's take a look at Tyrone Muggsy Bones from Wake Forest
2: and we walked in didn't even know that the thing that they had going on that night That everybody's going to come in with tuxedos and the ladies are going to have their gowns on. Just to see that type of atmosphere.
0: It's basketball time at Charlotte, North Carolina.
1: Welcome to Good Seats Still Available. A curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon.
0: My goodness how are you everybody it's your pal Tim Hanlon and yes it is time for another fun-filled episode of good seats still available yes it's a curious little podcast that is devoted to what used to be in professional sports and boy oh boy do we have a fun episode for you this week and what the what is Mike? what is going ah uh, I know I know I know what that sound is that's our special emergency retcon alert Brett Conneller, what does that mean, Tim? Well, as you probably know by now, as our various explorations of uh, pro teams over the years uh in various uh, leagues and uh, situations, uh you know that uh, occasionally we stumble into a quagmire when it comes to uh, certain clubs and their various uh I don't know demarcations and where they uh where their team histories should fully lie because of their, shall we say, checkered pasts. Well, this episode uh, for you basketball fans is devoted to exactly one of those retcon teams where the uh, uh, retroactive continuity uh, is uh, questionable. uh, And we'll get into it, especially this week uh, with our special guest, uh, Tyrone Muggsy Bogues. Yes, you may remember that name uh, from the, the 80s and the 90s and the early 2000s in the National Basketball Association, all five foot two of him. Uh, One of the standout players, one of the more memorable players uh, in modern NBA history. And the Charlotte Hornets is the team that we'll be talking about. He was one of the original members of that team, played for a good decade or so from uh, their very inception in 1988 as one of the then two expansion franchises, the other one being, of course, the Miami Heat. Um. The Hornets were the thing, not only in Charlotte, but across the league. I mean, from the get-go, they sold out what was then the largest arena in the league at the time, the brand spanking new uh, arena there, 22,500 seats it was, the Charlotte Coliseum. Uh, By the way, the Coliseum, which didn't last more than, I think, 15 years in terms of its total life, Uh, we'll get into sort of some of that uh, with Muggsy uh, in a few minutes. But the Hornets were there from 88 to 2002, and this is where the uh, the torturous uh, and uh, confusing history of the team sort of lies. You're going to say, "Well, wait a minute, Tim. Charlotte Hornets aren't a forgotten or abandoned or uh defunct team. No, they're they're very much alive." Well, yes, that's true. Uh the Charlotte Hornets exist right now, for sure. They are owned by uh the majority owners, Michael Jordan, of course. Uh Mitch Kupchak is the general manager and they just lost their head coach. Uh gives you a little bit of a sense of of how they're doing in today's uh, uh, Spectrum Center. That's the arena they play in now in Charlotte. Uh, how many championships have they won? Well, none. Uh, how many division championships or titles or or, or conference? Uh, t- well, none. Um, well, and that's kind of the state of, uh, state of affairs. However, um, it's important to understand the history of this team. The Hornets, when they left originally in 2002, absconded for New Orleans, where they became the New Orleans Hornets for a bunch of years. And of course, as you know now, they are known as the Pelicans. Um, but almost immediately after the original Hornets left, uh, a guy named Bob Johnson, well-known for establishing uh, the jug- the juggernaut uh, in cable television known as Black Entertainment Television, BET, then acquired by uh, Viacom, made him uh, a super, very rich man, uh, came in just shortly after the original team left. And by 2004, had convinced the NBA that, you know what? Come on back. We're going to build a brand new arena, a new, new arena in Charlotte. And uh, give us another team, William, and, we'll, and we'll really make it work this time. Uh, they were, of course, known as the Charlotte Bobcats. Little uh, hint there named after uh, sort of a, a, a hat tip to Bob Johnson. Uh, and for 10 years were known as the Bobcats until in 2014, nostalgia came a-calling. And the Hornets' name uh, all of a sudden sort of got that warm fuzzy glow of memories of people in Charlotte uh even though it wasn't all that far uh back in the, in the uh, in history and the Charlotte Hornet's name was resurrected and what did it, what did the NBA do they bent over backwards and literally took all that original history from the 88 to 2002 Charlotte Hornet's original franchise and bequeathed it uh, and embedded it in the current franchise of the Uh, new Hornets from 2014 onward. So what do we have? We've got a team essentially that is now historically uh, uh, and data-filled from 1988 all the way to 2014 uh, with a a blip of two years, which the NBA is going to kind of smooth over and just uh, gingerly sort of uh, refer to as a a pause in the franchise's history. Now, don't get me uh, started on the accuracy of all that kind of stuff uh, certainly Muggsy Bogues, who was there for the franchise's inception and arguably Halcyon years, because it was something during Muggsy's time. Uh, and we'll get into kind of uh, whether it deserves to be uh, uh, thought about in that way. Should the history go to New Orleans, uh, you know, or does it make sense to keep it in Charlotte? And I think by the time you'll we end this conversation, you'll understand why Muggsy feels that Charlotte should be uh, the one and only place for that original Charlotte Hornets history. I, and look, let's we're going to get into it. I mean, you know those those years, those eighty eight to uh, two thousand two years, uh, Muggsy was uh, there for just about all of them. It would save for a couple of them at the end. There, Alonzo Mourning, Rex Chapman, Kendall Gill, Larry Johnson, Glenn Rice, Kenny Anderson, uh, Vlade Divac was uh, made a, an appearance for a couple of years. Kelly trapuca who uh, if you may remember, you Charlotte Hornets original fans, uh, was the guy who helped. Um, usher in those uh, Alexander Julian uh, teal and purple jerseys, those designer jerseys. Uh, he was kind of the fashion guy walking down uh, the, the press conference, introducing those um, uh, amazingly uh, uh, garish yet uh, beloved and uh, uh, lusted after uh, uniforms that really set uh, the tone uh, as part of the Hornets' uh, launch there. Kurt Rambis is part of this uh, this uh, story, Sidney Lowe, and yeah, even Del Curry uh, to you youngsters out there, the uh, the father of Stephen Curry, uh, currently uh, trying to keep the uh, Golden State Warriors alive in today's uh, NBA championship series in the finals. As a matter of fact, uh, uh, Steph Curry uh, and Alonzo Mourning, for that matter, are uh, do uh, write out the forwards of uh, Muggsy's, uh autobiography that's out now. It's called Muggsy, My Life from a Kid in the Projects to the Godfather of Small Ball. And look, you, if you don't know the name Muggsy Bogues by now, my goodness, what a player. Uh, what a guy and, um, uh, you know, against all odds. I mean, a, a player who played high school ball with lots of uh, great Georgetown stars uh, at Dunbar uh, in uh, in Maryland uh, and, uh, you know, a, a standout player at Wake Forest. And, you you know, I don't think anybody would have uh, really thought him coming out of college, even though he was really, uh, really good, that he could ever make it in the NBA. And not only did he make it, he was a star. I mean, this is a guy who was the face or part of uh, the the constellation of stars during the 90s in the NBA, so much so that he was even in the movie Space Jam, which is sort of the ultimate all-star treatment, if you will. Uh, and um, just a, a great conversation. We were... Uh, really happy to have him for a few minutes, and um, uh, we get into not only his story, but that really of the Charlotte Hornets, the original version. Now uh, we also get into uh, some of his exploits. Uh, uh, aside from that, uh, you may remember that Muggsy was uh, one of the uh, was a player uh, for the Washington Bullets before they changed their name. Uh, the Rhode Island Gulls of the USBL, United States Basketball League, that was for uh, players. Uh, of a certain height challenge, shall we say, Uh, and uh, really where he got to start. He was also a coach for two years in the WNBA for the Charlotte Sting. Also qualifies as a topic of interest for us here on this little show. Uh, All of that and more. It's a fun conversation with the great Muggsy Bogues coming up in just a few moments time. And you know what? You should also check out a documentary that uh, recently came out about Muggsy. It's called Muggsy Always Believe. Uh, it frequently runs on NBA TV. Uh, it's a great uh, sort of uh, encapsulation of uh, uh, of his story and that of uh, Entwined with the uh, Charlotte Hornets. Uh, a little uh, tip of uh, the hat uh, to that documentary and uh, a little teaser uh, in our conversation this week. Coming up with Mo- uh, Muggsy Bogues. Here we go. In uh, just a few moments time. Please stay tuned. You will enjoy. I guarantee it. Uh, and uh, a quick note from our sponsor this week. It's SportsHistoryCollectibles.com. Hiya, Dean. Dean Mitchell that is in San Diego uh check him out sportshistorycollectibles.com it's all those great memories and whether they be collectibles of whatever trading cards they could be buttons or bumper stickers maybe it's a media guide perhaps it's a program uh all kinds of stuff even you know in, in the world before nfts uh you would collect uh, and save your souvenir ticket stub um Or ashtray or whatever, uh, or keychain or whatever they were given away at the game. Those things are going to find their way to sportshistorycollectibles.com. And if you have uh, memories of of some of those teams and leagues, uh, and you want to perhaps get one of those uh, original items from days of yore, uh, this is the treasure trove that uh, you must Check on a regular basis. SportsHistoryCollectibles.com. Check them out. Wonderful stuff. Better and more well-lit than eBay. The photography of all the items is great. The pricing is fantastic. Uh, And you're going to enjoy all the stuff that uh, you see and hopefully buy uh, when you uh, check them out. SportsHistoryCollectibles.com. Promo code GOODSEATS for 15% off all of your purchases. Again, SportsHistoryCollectibles.com. Promo code GOODSEATS. And enjoy fifteen percent off all of your uh, all of your purchases. Thank you, Dean, for your uh, continued support of the show. We cannot thank you enough. All right, let's get to it. Here he is, the man, the myth, the legend. All oh, five foot two of them. Here we go. Here's our great conversation we had just a week and a half ago with the great Muggsy Bogues. Please, as always, enjoy. Hello, hello. Hello. Hey, how you doing, Mugsy? You can nice, nice to see you. First of all, (laughs) Um, you're not going to see me because uh, I uh, uh, like to keep it audio only for uh, quality. Because um, not that you're not great to look at. I love your book, uh, your bookshelf behind you there. But uh, I have found that Zoom will just eat up uh, bandwidth and stuff and and drop out uh, the audio and stuff. So, and this is a podcast after all. So you know. Um, But I also saw I also see you as Tyrone, which I was not expecting to see, because I'm sure how many people call you that anymore? Not many.
2: Not (laughs) many at all. Uh, My mom was pretty much one of the only people that called me. Actually, a couple of my aunts still call me that. They call me Ty.
0: All right. Well, we're going to we're, we're going to call you by whatever you want to be called. I just want to, first of all, thank you for, for taking some time. I know you're you know out there hustling the book and stuff. And um, and it's uh, an honor to, to talk to a future Hall of Famer for sure. Uh, and I know you address it in your book. I know you're not in there yet. But, you know, I think it's, you know, just a matter of time. And I, I would assume that you should have you should probably think the same with all due respect.
2: Well, you know, I'm not sitting holding my breath. I mean, it would be something if you have a. Came my way, i would be definitely honored for sure. Uh, but that's up for others that think in that line of, of thinking, and hopefully that it comes to that fruition, you know, and and and, be, and I'll be a part of that special uh, fraternity. But other than that, you know, I'm just grateful for the the uh, time that I had in the NBA. I'm grateful for my journey of uh, being able to to accomplish some of the accolades that I was able to accomplish throughout my my career, and I, I'm I'm happy with that.
0: Uh, I had the uh, the uh, uh, just the the, uh, the the fun and the honor and just frankly, just the randomness uh, literally last week of seeing and recording uh, your uh, I guess you call it a documentary. It was on NBA TV uh, a week or two ago. Did you know that? Oh, the always believe. Yes. So, uh, yes, that was
2: something that was done through by the NBA um, back when. Uh, it was in what early november i believe when it came
0: out um yeah was- I, had, I hadn't seen it before but i was just lucky I and mean, it's like i'm I'm gonna be talking to bugsy in like two weeks this is awesome so it was yeah. it was a it was a great uh, and and well-timed frankly too because and you could tell it was done a little bit during the uh, pandemic because i obviously people like alonzo and the others were kind of on uh-huh. zoom and stuff so
2: yes exactly correct and, uh, and i'm just so thankful for the guy that uh time out of their schedule to take part of the documentary uh, because I believe the NBA did a really good job telling the story, um, especially uh, being able to create that type of image in terms of the box that they was able to, to formulate uh, me out of that that box. And, uh, and it just, I think it was well done.
0: Well, for sure. But your story is, is tremendous. And, and I, we only have a limited amount of time, but as you, as you probably know uh, uh, your uh, A PR person probably kind of give you a sense that our little podcast has been focused on our little want here is focused on uh, teams and leagues, for whatever reasons, no longer with us and a defunct and relocated and that kind of stuff. And your story uh, and the book in particular, too, is is almost a kind of like a love letter to Charlotte and in particular, the first and original version of the Charlotte Hornets. Um, So I just thought it was a natural conversation because, you know, this is a, a obviously the Hornets exist today. Uh, but obviously it's a different version. Um, but the first version, right. Was it, was a hell of a story. And by all accounts, uh, you know, if anybody could be perceived as a foundational component of that original team, it has to be Muggsy Bugs.
2: (laughs) Well, I appreciate that. Yeah. We had uh, I mean, when we first came in in 88, uh, there was, it was a special time because the, the, state the city uh, was pretty much known as a collegiate basketball and we was able to come down and, and put that snap of professionalism here and the support that we was able to to receive was unbelievable and that really uh, was fortunate enough where we was able to be lead a, lead in lead attendance for nine straight years and I think that allowed, the uh, NBA to really see how a small market can really, you know, rejuvenate and, and, re- and support a, a small franchise like we were in and, and, and a, and a small market. And I think because we have some of the national players like myself, the Lonzo Moyes, the Larry Johnson, Del Currys of the world, I mean, they realize and they resonated. And now that we have the new version of it with the LaMelo Ball and uh, the Miles Bridges and the P.J. Tuckers of the world, I mean, the place is electrifying. And I think they bring in that type of culture back to the city.
0: Well, but but let's be let's be frank. You, you, what did you think about Charlotte when you were when you saw your name or heard your name after the fact on the on the dispersal draft or the expansion draft? Um, you, you were playing with the Bullets at the time and and even had a uh, I'm guessing sort of I a, a, I don't know, a post collegiate slash sort of NBA seasoning uh, in the minor leagues even before that. Right. So, I mean. Ooh. explain a bit about your journey in, into that, because I think you're already punching above your weight or the expectations uh, the, well, having lasted at least through a year of the NBA, let alone go into an expansion franchise the next year. Uh, yeah. Well,
2: the, the, the USBL, league that was just before the draft. I was just doing that just to get in shape before I got drafted. And um, once I got injured, tweaked my ankle a little bit, I stopped playing uh, because I didn't want to jeopardize my, my uh, stock or my position in terms of being drafted so that's why I decided to stay uh, not play anymore with the USBL but it gave me a lot of uh, experience playing against some former uh, NBA guys but when I got drafted and being able to play for the Bullets and being selected at 12 and feel like you was being part of that future uh, for some times and then you find out that you're no longer part of that organization. They put you up to an expansion team. You was pissed, but at the same time, you know, I was looking for a new beginning, you know, and coming to Charlotte, having, leaving uh, Wake Forest, having an opportunity to understand what Carolina was about. You know, I was looking forward to it uh, to resurrect my career.
0: So, okay, I was, but give me a sense, though, before, as before we get into the Charlotte thing. So you're a standout at Wake Forest and uh, a revelation, right? You played at the uh, the legendary Dunbar high school in Maryland uh, with a whole bunch of, and and, and fair disclosure, I'm a a Georgetown graduate, right? So uh, when you talk about people like David Wingate and and Lonzo Mourning and uh, and, yeah, exactly. Right. So um, a lot of them, you know, came from that cradle of of basketball excellence, but, you know, I mean, and I know you talk about this in the book and you're probably sick of, of of talking about it, but you know, it's clear that most talent scouts, right. Are already going to overlook you no matter Mm -hmm. how much heart and guts you have. And yet, you ascended to such a level, not only the collegiate level, but obviously in the early parts of your your pro career. I mean, at what point in your basketball life did you kind of know that, you know what? I actually have this in me to go to the top level.
2: Well, I always knew that that I had it in me. I mean, each level, you know, I just took it as that um, junior high school. Then once I got into high school and and being able to be on one of the top high school uh, teams in, in the nation, uh, having the recruits come to recruit us pretty much at our practice as opposed to going to our games, um, you know, i made it a point when they left out, well, whoever they came to see, want to make sure they talked about me going the way out. So having that confidence and having that mindset, if I played against the best, I had success against the best, I must be included with the best. You know, that attitude, and that mindset allowed me to keep climbing each ladder. In each level, I believe that I can be successful in every level. And going to college, um, no different. Um, knowing that I was putting myself in the best situation, playing in the best conference I thought that was in the nation, uh, playing against the type of player that I had to play against, the Mark Price, the Kenny Smith, the Michael Jordan of the world. It puts you on that stage the air every given night. So it allowed me to keep believing and to keep knowing that if I keep standing on this path and this journey, everything will work out for
0: itself. All right, so the expansion draft comes about <clears throat> You're left unprotected by the bullets and the Hornets come a calling. Um, what did you think you knew about Charlotte, the organization? Um, what were you thinking was going to happen? Uh, and maybe what were your first impressions, both I don't know, the management, uh, the the city? Obviously, you, you went to Wake Forest. so You kind of know the the North Carolina thing. Uh, what were you expecting? And maybe what did you sort of not expect in your sort of early days getting into the Charlotte thing?
2: Well, first getting over being pissed after the being told that. <laughs> sure, of course. After being told after our exit meeting that you know they was bringing in players that kind of fit your style, the up tempo style, and then knowing as soon as you got home that you got a phone call, knowing that you was not being protected and you was going to be you know up for the
0: dispersed team. Um, yeah, and by the way, talking about up st- up up tempo yeah. style, I mean you're the epitome of that. I mean but
2: I, I thought that's what they was going to do because at the time they had a bunch of older guys Moses Malone Bernard King you know guys on the tail end of their career uh Daryl Walker Jeff Malone sort of so I thought they was going to kind of um they had John Wing Williams who was young at the time Terry Kattles but I thought they was going to commit to bringing in guys that was more or less you know catered towards what I was suited for but it didn't happen and I think that's the the, the ugly head of the NBA in terms of showing itself, knowing the business side of it, and I had to reshift my thinking. You know, knowing that I was going to another organization, a, a organization just you know trying to get 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 their feet in the door because it's a brand new organization. I thought positive thoughts. I figured like this is the beginning of a franchise. I could be part of this for quite some time. Uh, just a matter of me going out there being on a uh, being consistent on each given night. And that's something that I always hope my head on.
0: Well, OK, but you also probably were aware, right, that that, you know, the, the history of especially in, in pro sports in the United States, but the NBA certainly in particular. Right. The the history of of expansion franchises and and shall we call it immediate success is not a not a long one. Right. It's a it's a it tends to be a very long road to go from brand new franchise into something that's even competitive. That must have been weighing on you a little bit. Right.
2: Well, yeah, well, Well, not so much. I mean, it was more or less you thinking about your career. Um, You know, the organization was a young uh, career starting up and it was all about acquiring draft picks. And each year you was able to acquire draft pick because of the situation that we was in. And once we start to acquire draft picks and got quality players, you know, that became changing the culture. That became an organization that believed that they can be something to be reckoned with. And in our fifth year of uh, in existence, we was fortunate enough to make the playoff because of that, because of acquiring the players like Alonzo the, the Larry Johnson's Kendall Gilles of the World. And in my fifth year and having Del Curry there, that both of us was the four two of the only two was fortunate enough to sustain longevity with the organization. And it was mainly because what we brought to the table, our style of play, and of what they had supported us around us.
0: All right. After. But the, during that first season, though, y- you didn't have sort of that the benefit of, of hindsight to, going for you. Right. And y- you mentioned this in 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 the uh, in the documentary uh, for sure. And you kind of danced around it. And we don't have to, to dig into it. But let's put it this way. Your your first coach, Dick Harder, uh, right. wasn't necessarily either an tempo guy nor necessarily enamored with uh, a one Muggsy Bokes that was uh, right. a part of the new uh, incoming uh, freshman class, so to speak.
2: Yeah, and Dick, Coach Dick Harder may rest in peace. He was from the old school. He liked bigger guards, you know, and still me coming in, you know, even though I didn't start my first year, you know, I played a lot and I start several games. But Dick, you know, and, and the only reason I was able to do that because, you know, it was kind of hard for him to take me off the floor. But then he still was, you know, was frustrated because he felt like he wanted bigger guards. And he went in our owner's uh, office who happened to be 5'5 five, five, and got on his knees and pretty much said, this is what I'm faced with every night that we play Muggsy. And, uh, of course, that didn't go well with the owner. I mean, again, he was 5'5 himself. And uh, But once that resolved itself, we got a new coach. The franchise took off. Uh, we became, you know, winning. We start winning more games each year. Went from 19 to 20 to 31 to 44 to 56 to 50-plus 50 games. And that was due to, of course, the, uh, the draft picks and the culture. And of course, that was the adversity I had to go through in order for me to be able to sustain or maintain the type of career that I wanted. How,
0: how much input did, uh, uh, you know, you, you obviously you became very quickly and early on a, a spark plug, literally and, and figuratively for this team. Um, how much input did you have in maybe help guiding the successor coaches and or the organization into the kinds of guys that ultimately came in the in the years following all these great stars that you're mentioning that, frankly, not only did you click with, but I mean, you were just, you know, uh, working in concert with so well, uh, the big guys, right? And feeding them and dishing them and, and leading and assists and all that kind of stuff. Did you have any did you have the ear of anybody to kind of say this is the kind of guy I could better work with than say others?
2: Well, I've, I mean, we had input in terms of the organization because we was one of the, the top, the guys that we was being looked at as not the franchise guy, but guys that was the core of the franchise. So we didn't have, say, well, this is exactly who we wanted, but we knew exactly in terms of the position and draft uh, selection that we have, who we was going to be able to acquire. Uh, we knew we had the first pick. We knew they had the second pick. So but through those picks, we knew that we was going to get Alonzo Mourning because we knew Shaq was going to go to Orlando. And then, of course, we knew we was going to get Larry Johnson because that was something that Alan Bristol and all of us, we discussed. But they knew the talent that was coming out. So, yes, we was involved. We we knew exactly who we were about to select.
0: And when people like like Zoe and Larry Johnson, right? These are these are two legendary big guys already, frankly, before they were even coming in. Um, How do you how did you how and how do you connect with these guys and and figure out your respective roles? Right. Um, I mean, there's got to be a limit to your enthusiasm to making them look good and getting them the, you know, the the shovel pass for that dunk. Right. Uh, But obviously, you guys work so hand in hand because you are a playmaker, and these guys oftentimes are finishers, right? Is that a natural process or does it take a little time to kind of proverbially get to know each other and kind of work it out?
2: Um, I mean, we was fortunate enough to have the instant chemistry. I mean, those guys played their position and we all played our position. I was the point guard. LJ was the four. And Zoe was the five. Dell was the two. And Johnny Neiman was the three. Kendall was the two as well. Uh, everybody had their position. Everybody knew what their roles were. I mean, it was, you know, everybody understood what type of uh, uh, skill set everybody brought to the table. Uh, we uh, complemented one another. And as a point guard, you have to understand what the strength and weakness of those guys and put them in a position where they can be successful as opposed to less. So um, again, yeah, the chemistry was, was blessed in terms of where we were able to pick it up at an early age. I mean, at early at early stage.
0: Tell me what uh, uh, the Charlotte uh, experience was like. I mean, you were you're playing in a brand new arena. It was like twenty two thousand seats. I think it was. It was just like the largest. I think it was the largest basketball centric arena at the time, right? Uh, and you were selling out left and right. I mean, I think there was. I was almost a decade or so of just consecutive sellouts. It was an absolute phenomenon, and I got to think that the uh, especially as you were as the team was getting better and gelling and uh, you were I, it had to be just more than an event in Charlotte. It was just truly like a scene and 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 feeding off sort of the fan uh, interest uh, in the team. And you must have just been on cloud nine with that.
2: No, we was humble guys. We uh, we understood our position and what we was how we've been recognized in the city. Um, of course, we were set out for nine straight years. We won the attendance in that regards, uh, 24,000 fans every night. Um, but that was the, the beauty of, uh, of the growth of, of, wanting to believe that, you know, we could possibly one day bring a championship to the, to the city. You know, I mean, even though it didn't happen, but that was a belief that this could happen if we can stay together. Um, if we continue to keep adding pieces that complement one another, um, that's the, that's the beautiful thing of it. And Charlotte, was wonderful in terms of hospitality. I mean, it was so hospitable here amongst the, uh, amongst the families that was here. They had open arms with everybody. We go to restaurants. We only had to pay for food. I mean, that's how we like rock stars around here. I mean, it was unbelievable.
0: Yeah. I mean, it was amazing because, I mean, you had uh, uh, four uh, expansion franchises, uh, Miami, Miami, Minnesota and uh, Orlando at the same time. And I think by all accounts, I mean, uh, uh, Charlotte was the absolute standout. And just and literally, you know, growing up in the New York area, watching the games, you know, that I could that were available on cable and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it was just it was jaw dropping to see just how many fans would come. And the idea of these just consistent and always sold out games. I mean, there just had to be uh, had to be an immense amount of jealousy around the league about what you guys were achieving. In Charlotte,
2: no. Whatever well, they six men. I mean, everybody, every arena believed that they have a six man that's on their side, and, and our fans were our six men. I mean, they brought a lot of excitement, a lot of cheer, a lot of joy, uh, make you want to go in to work each and every day, and that was a wonderful thing having that type of support. I mean, we we reciprocated uh, as well. I mean, it was something that um, we really truly appreciated because they did. Make it that special. Um, getting to go to work each and every time we had games in the arena.
0: What um, you guys climbed the mountain. Uh, you know, a couple of rounds in the playoffs over over that span of time. Uh, and there's some in the documentary, there's some great uh, sort of memories of, of some of the, the passing of the guard and you beating the the old, if you will, literally, figuratively Boston Celtics and, uh, you know, sort of the, the 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 new kids in town, so to speak. And, and uh, but you guys were never sort of really able to get sort of over that sort of next level hump. Um, I, I get the sense both from the book and the documentary that um, that maybe the team was kind of broken up a, just a tad bit too soon that perhaps given all the experience and all the folks that had come into play and long term players like yourself, right? Um maybe could have had one or two more shots at it if if had been left alone.
2: Uh absolutely that's the again, the ugly end of the NBA. Um think two things had happened to us. Injuries, uh guys had got hurt. Um I hurt my knee, Larry had hurt his back. And then Alonzo decided that he wanted to go to, well, he didn't decide it. But when he felt like the organization didn't make him the offer that he wanted, he took his talent to to uh, Miami, and that was the break. That's that was the beginning of the breakup. And then when Alonso, when Larry hurt his back, then that's when they traded L.J. to New York for uh, Mason. Uh, Mason, may he, Anthony Mason, may he rest in peace. And then of course, Dell and I knew. Uh, sooner or later, that we'll be headed out. After that, uh, it was a changing of the guards, and that's what happened with the uh, the NBA. When new uh, a new regime come in, they want their own, and they feel like you know something. They feel like they can kind of do in a different way.
0: What's this? Binge sesh, binge, binge sesh. Hey, all of a sudden, I'm Buddy Hackett. Binge sesh, it's a great podcast. For sure it is. It's the uh, uh, brand new podcast from the Los Angeles Times. Again, it's called Binge Sesh. Thank you, buddy. But that's how you pronounce it. Uh, And why should you listen to it? Well, hey, did you listen to our episode with Jeff Perlman back in the day? We talked about the USFL. Well, as you know, Jeff is a uh, prolific sports uh, nonfiction writer and his book, Winning Time, was the impetus and the uh, inspiration for this wildly successful and controversial at that HBO series winning time about the magic era, Showtime, Los Angeles Lakers, the team that changed America and the NBA for sure. Uh, and Binge Sesh from the Los Angeles Times uh, is the place to, it's a companion, I would say, uh, to the uh, to the great series. Uh, if you want to really hear the inside story and the real uh, origins and the real uh people behind the Skyhooks and the Slam Dunks and the Jerry Buss Empire and the uh, L.A. Forum and uh, all that was going on in that period of time. Magic himself, all the various stars and and uh, ancillary casts of characters. Um, it's about the basketball, but it's about so much more than just that. You'll hear from actors and TV writers, professors, experts from the L.A. Times, people who were there. And it's a fun romp. And it's hosted co-hosted actually by the LA Times' TV editor Matt Brennan and professional basketball player Kareem Maddox. You may remember him from his collegiate days as a star standout at Princeton and a current member, I think still, of the U.S. Uh, national 3x3 team, uh, which is now an Olympic sport too. Give it a listen. Again, it's called Binge Sesh, S-E-S-H, Binge Sesh uh, from the LA Times. You can find it uh, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, it's a hoot. You'll enjoy it, and um, we appreciate their sponsorship of our show. And now back to it and our conversation. I, I want to be respectful of your time. We don't have much of it, but uh, so I think we all know, you know, some of the major names uh, that 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 you were associated with during those years. Um, you know, uh, Alonzo and, uh, and Larry Johnson and, and and Del Curry, of course. Um, but th- th- yeah, there w- give us some other names of people, perhaps that maybe during that period of time. And some great names too, McKinney Anderson, who's now on on, on television, literally every other game it seems, um, etc. But what other sort of players do you think maybe? or a little unheralded perhaps that maybe either you thoroughly enjoyed playing with, or you felt maybe didn't get as um, enough attention perhaps as you guys did, uh, you know, with all that star wattage. We're in Charlotte. Yeah. You know, unsung hero types, perhaps.
2: Sh- well, we had quite a few guys. The Kenny Gaddison, you got Scott Burrell. We had, um, I mean, how many guys we had? Johnny Newman. Uh, you mentioned, we alluded to Kendall Gill. We had the, Tony Bennett's of the world that played with us, uh, Kevin Lynch, Earl Church and Ricky Green. I mean Anthony uh, Mason, of course. We had uh, Anthony Frederick, uh, Darren Headcott, Anthony Goldwater. We had so many guys that was was deserving deserving to get recognition. But they played their role. Everybody was complimentary to one another, and that was a special bond that we was able to to have with each other. I mean, go from the Kelly, even early on in the days, from Kelly Stampuka to Kirk Ramos to Dave Hopson to Tim Kempton. You know, we had some really good guys that came through the organization.
0: Oh, yeah. yeah, Glenn Rice in there. Uh, Vladdy Dibach for for, for a, a cup of coffee as well. I mean, some really just great names for sure. Yeah, yeah. but, you know, Glenn got all of the
2: attention. And so I thought you say guys who didn't get much attention. No, 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 sure, sure, sure. Of course. We had, of course, we had Glenn Rice and Vladdy Dibach and those guys. Um, you know, the late Bobby Fields um so it's uh quite a few guys that came through the organization david wesley kenny Anderson. i mean a lot of guys came through the organization that really was deserving uh, Rand- uh, randolph keys uh ricky green anthony i mean uh, uh even Robbie Parrish played with us <laughs> you know uh ricky pierce eddie johnson a lot of guys
0: so all right so ha- uh, wh- you kind of hinted at it, but when did you kind of know i mean When did you sort of know that the writing was on the wall, that Charlotte was not? Because my guess is that you were I mean, from what I've read, both in your book and elsewhere, right, it was almost kind of either assumed or maybe even said to you that that you kind of were going to stay and you could stay in Charlotte kind of as long as you wanted or was is that an incorrect assessment or No. no, no player has that ability, it seems these days. Right. But I mean, if anybody. Right.
2: Right. Absolutely. Yeah. But that was that uh, that was told to us. You know, and I, we felt that like we was going to be able to uh, uh, retire as a Hornet. And once we retired as a Hornet, we'll move up in the front office. Um, of course, that was shared with us. But again, when other people that comes in and can influence other folks, then, you know, other people minds changes, And especially when it's the nature of a business. Um, and that's what happened, you know, but like I said, Who'd even thought that they, if a Michael Jordan could be traded, then who was the Muggsy Bogues?
0: What, so, did you get the sense that? Um, so, when do you think uh, the team lost? Shall we say the fans? Right? I mean, George Shin. Right, was kind of like sort of the, yeah. the walking on water during the beginning of all this, right? But you know, as you're leaving, I mean, you're one of the most popular players of. You're the face, literally, of this franchise. And that's when the
2: that's when the downfall happened with all the sellouts. When I left, and they had no more sellouts. That was it. I was, you know, we lost Lonzo, we lost Larry, we lost everybody. Those guys, and we still was able to hold our own. Twenty four thousand still selling out, uh, but. You know, the day they got rid of me, that was, I think, a, a lot of people was really disappointed. And Dell was still, Dell was still here. Um, I remember they even had a playoff game where they had to blackout at the top because they couldn't get people um, to the arena. And, uh, and then, unfortunately, they had to, they went on and moved to New Orleans.
0: When you left, how? Um... You know, how much did you what did you think was going to happen to the to the franchise? Or were you just kind of like, I'd sit up, I'm, I'm going where I'm told to go. I'm going to the Warriors, going to, you know, can continue my playing career. Um, I mean, I got to think the part of your heart. I mean, you're you're hinting at it. I think you still live in the area. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. My heart always going to be with Charlotte. My okay.
2: heart was with Charlotte. I mean, when I left, I knew that if the franchise wasn't going to be the same. It's because the type of culture that we created. And the creation and, and, you know, and the people, the fans, they really enjoyed who we were and what we stood for and what we brought night in and night out. Um, and I just think they lost a lot of that. Cause, and a lot of other things was happening at the same time. Mr. Shin was going through his situation. Um, so a lot of things really contributed. It wasn't just my departure only. There were so many things, so many variables that was involved that that led up to, you know, the... the the less tendance in, you know, for the game that that during that year. Um, But again, you know, we had it. So it was so special the way we came in and how we was able to create that beautiful tail and gold and that tail and purple that was represented all over the the country.
0: All right. I got to ask you, though, the colors, though, pretty different, pretty uh, uh, bold, pretty uh, uh, unique, I guess, uh, and splashy. Uh, even in retrospect, uh, those those colors are, well, I don't know. Some people love them, some people hate them. Uh, how did I mean? Your uh, your jerseys were pretty, uh, kind of designer esque, really, with those colors. Um, how did you feel playing in those colors? Were you comfortable? They certainly weren't classic.
2: Yeah, we was comfortable. I mean, it, it, I mean, we were the first team that wore some pleeks. It was a little unique. But the colors became something that grew up amongst everybody because there were some bright colors, you know, the tail and the purple. Uh, That tail was something special along with the purple and then with the white kick in. I mean, it was something unique. And again, like I said, it became such a color that was represented not only just in the United States, but in uh, China and all over the different countries um, with upstarted jackets that was pretty popular
0: during that time. Yeah. And everybody, everybody knew that that was the team too. So the colors. All right. So here's my sort of last sort of little uh, package of questions and it's near, you know, it's obviously the, when you left, right. And then Dell ultimately left and, and the, did you ever think that the original now, now known as original Charlotte Hornets would actually leave Charlotte so quickly thereafter? I mean, literally leave and relocate as a franchise, or did you, I mean, I, I given all of that success, both you know, on the court and all the great players that you're talking about, and and you're you're you know running the running the team as that and being synonymous with it and all the attendance figures and, and records and all that stuff. I mean, three years later, I mean, there's no franchise. I mean, did you ever imagine that would happen?
2: Well, not exactly in that way, but when we start the, when we when I left, I start the, I, I saw the, you know the, the decline. Um, but then again, as like I said, as things start to materialize and other things start to come into play, people start to really get torn uh, and torn away from the organization. They brought in another owner, uh, which in Ray which in Georgia did. And I mean, things was trying to continue to operate. But outside in the public, you know, it still wasn't, you know, weighing the, uh, uh, passing the smell test. And a lot of people was really disappointed in it. And then, of course, the things that Mr. Shen had gone through um, with off the court and, and being in the circuit court and all that really put him at uh, a disposition. But I think what really was the icing on the cake was the referendum that he was looking for for them to build a new stadium. And they wouldn't do that. And that's what he decided to take the team to New Orleans. And they left in 2002 and which was unheard of because then they called, the city called on me to put on a campaign in 2003, which we did, and we was able to be awarded another franchise in 2004. And they kept, and it was, at the time it was decided between Bob, Mr. Bob Johnson and Larry Bird Group. And of course, Mr. Johnson was awarded because he was one of the few African-Americans who had the capital. And at the time, there wasn't no African-American ownership in the NBA. And I think that was one of the main sticklers of whether he was able to get awarded that franchise.
0: I did not know. So you were part of getting the new team into Charlotte there thereafter.
2: Yes, I was part of the
0: campaign where we put on a major campaign um, and it worked how okay sorry I, I i didn't i sort of really didn't understand sort of that role so how how do you go and how does the organization then i mean despite and clearly you know, bob johnson somebody's you know well regarded in the cable television uh, industry and obviously a, a, an entrepreneur successful at that and african-american on top of that there's a lot of reasons to to, to gravitate to that kind of that kind of pitch that kind of uh, ownership group but uh, how does the NBA, even though, entertain the idea, given the fact that they moved? I mean, I, was it literally just this arena that was kind of the sticking point? I mean, I, if I'm the NBA, I would go, OK, well, Charlotte, you had a good 10 plus years. I mean, maybe we should look elsewhere.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, because the the bottom line wasn't matching up and they was losing a lot of money. So I guess, you know, when your organization is losing money, you felt like, you got another city that's offering you an extension, you know, you're going to look at that. And I'm quite sure that's one of the main reasons they decided to move because of those, you know, circumstances.
0: um, Okay. Then two last questions. Was the Charlotte sting where you coached for two years, the WNBA, was that actually part perhaps of, of the NBA's, uh, the pitch to the NBA and that, Hey, we'll help you with, a franchise in the fledgling WNBA. And maybe that'll also help tip the scales in our way to get another franchise qu- quickly for the WNBA. Well, no, I mean, by, by having the Charlotte sting startup, right. Cause I think the, it was, I, I think that was also part of Bob Johnson's pitch yeah. right to the NBA.
2: Well, you got to know Bob Johnson, he dispersed the, the, uh, the 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 WNBA. Oh, yeah, was, sorry, got it. Yeah, he was. They was on existence for one year, and two years under his uh, under his watch, and uh, two oh, oh six and oh seven, because um, I coached the last ten games, and then I coached one year, one season, and then he just got rid of the team afterwards.
0: Interesting. Okay, I I had I had misunderstood and thought that perhaps that. Part of the allure of the NBA coming back to Charlotte might have also been, hey, you know, we'll also you know, we'll take on uh, a women's franchise as well and help the fledgling WNBA, which the NBA was backing at the time. But it um,
2: probably, probably at the beginning, maybe that could have been, but I never thought that was part of it. But it could have been because again, they came along as the Bobcats and the Sting. You know, they know they never left to go to the uh, New Orleans. They always stayed in Charlotte.
0: Yeah, and you you, you wonder, right? The, the Hornets and the Sting. I mean, obviously, the brand names work so well together. Um, how was uh, this? Will be I promise. But one more question after this. How was it coaching in the WNBA? Obviously, it's it's a earlier generation of the WNBA. It's obviously a, a quite a, a substantial success now. But that future wasn't necessarily guaranteed back in the day. What what convinced you to hang up the shoes and become a coach? Uh, in that league and, and, and in Charlotte, which I think is probably part of it because you at least were back you know, where your heart was.
2: Well, for one, I was asked to do it. And one, I love the game of basketball. Women, men, regardless of the gender, I just love the game. And having that opportunity to, to be able to coach those ladies, I mean, they was true professionals. i uh, so grateful and honored to have that opportunity. They came in and gave me everything they had. Uh, they were true professionals. I mean, people don't realize what women represent, what they represent. And I wish that the league will market the league in regards of giving them their flowers and giving those women's their true, uh, their true respect and what they really mean, not only to, as a player, but as an individual, what they mean as a whole. Because if a woman decides not even to go to work and not even want to be part of you and accept you or uh, decide not want to have any babies, you know what this world would be. It would be kind of messed up, I I think. But what they represent, being a mother, being able to go home and provide for their children, uh, for their husband, their family, and then cook and then come back and play, uh, that's remarkable. I think it's being marketed too much to where it's looked upon as a a more of a, 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 I don't even want to say uh, the word, but it's looked upon as um, not in regards of, women being
0: yeah I, yeah perceived as an inferior which is an inferior product which it's absolutely not and and I I would actually argue I I always take a WNBA game over an NBA game more more nights than not I, in terms of just overall skill and 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 you know versus just the finesse and the you know the overly professional I, you know, sometimes NBA games are just a little too tiresome to watch because you kind of it's just all about the three point shot at the end of the game right where in WNBA seems a lot more strategic almost pure form of the game. Well, they focus more on that
2: fundamental aspect of the game, even though you have a lot of more athletic women that's out there playing the game. But, you know, a lot focus is more on the fundamental aspect of it, where the NBA, you know, a lot of athleticism uh, takes over. Fundamentals is not as at the forefront, but, you know, I, I still love my NBA.
0: Yeah, I you now I, I hear you, especially come playoff time. It's hard not to say that during the playoffs. All right. Here's my last question, I promise. Um, and I think you're well qualified to answer this because, like I said earlier, right, there's probably nobody in the history of the original Charlotte Hornets franchise that is or was synonymous with it than you. Um we uh, in our little uh, our podcast, we so we obsess about like where teams, legacies and histories live and stuff. And the NBA kind of pulled, I guess, uh, the NFL version of the, the Cleveland Browns with this Hornets franchise and that they retroactively, if you will, change the history. Right. Obviously, there is a second version of the Charlotte Hornets and and people recognize that that, as we said, was two years after the original uh, franchise uh, left for for new orleans a new one was brought into place and it was the bobcats for a number of years but then they went back to that hornet's name obviously to get some nostalgia and all that kind of stuff and and the harmony of, of all that original but let me ask you this where do you think your history your 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 players history uh the fans memories sh- should that history go and are the are those banners where are the banners you know supposed to go where are the the halls of fame and that kind of stuff and all the, you know, the, the, the uh, reunions and all that stuff, is it in new Orleans with the Pelicans or is it with the current version of the Hornets, even though they're not really the original Hornets? It's not a trick question. It's just, it's just an interesting one, right?
2: No, 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 it's not a trick question. No, uh, but still, these are the original Hornets that we have here. It just that, the Pelicans, you know, they're the Pelicans. So the time that they was there using the brand name, the Hornets, you know, you know, all those records have came back to the Hornets. So the Hornets still own all the records, everything that labels Hornets, even when it was under the New Orleans Hornets, the Hornets owns. So the original Hornets, our original Hornets, of course, I will pick that as the with our lives in terms of, you know, tradition, but, you know, and that's what we more or less stands on, the tradition. Now, we know, we won Fortunate enough to win championships, um, but you got to look at the tradition of what the Hornets meant and that in terms of the players that came through, um, uh, in terms of the way we came in, as, as well as the, the fans, you cannot not allow and not include the fans because those are special. The very first game, the fans came, the ladies came in gowns, the men just dressed up in tuxedos, you know, 24,000 fans, even though, you know, we lost the game by 40 points that night. But after the game was over, they stood up and gave us a standing ovation. that knew, We knew then this was going to be a very special place So, you know, hanging the banners and hanging whatever they want to hang up, it definitely has to go here in this spectrum set of which now serve as the honest.
0: All right, so so there's the definitive answer, friends. If you're if you're wondering, okay, maybe where where should that history of the original Charlotte Hornets lie? You heard it from the man himself, right? It it's all part of one continuous, if not sort of neatly uh, recorded uh, history. That this is Charlotte's team, and in many respects, is it's the story of Charlotte's professional basketball life what are you thinking of of the team these days how are you active in it at all are you just a just a fan you got a season ticket i mean do you, do you would you like to be more involved uh, or are you just moved on to other things in your life
2: no i serve as an ambassador for the team so i'm, I'm heavily involved you know i'm around all the time with the uh with the the the, the, the executives you know Mitch and as well as fred who's running the organization on the uh, business side of it as well, uh, Mr. Seth Bennett. So I, I'm involved. I'm involved with him, and I'm happy to see the direction of where it's headed. Um, uh, I'm, I'm loving the young core, and we need a few more pieces to go along with what we have. Uh, hopefully we can keep uh, these guys together and see what they all materialize to. Um, giving up on guys early on always been the wrong thing to do, and I'm, uh, and I'm grateful for the experience that Mitch Kupchak has because he knows the value of what he has on the team and he will know when it's time to, to move on. But I think a few pieces here and there and some more development in the young guys, we can be really, you know, we can be really scary.
0: <laughs> well, you're not scary. You're wonderful. You're a wonderful conversation and um there's no better uh, person I can't imagine to have be an ambassador for uh, this Hornets franchise than, uh, Mugsy Bogues I, this has been awesome thank you for taking time I'm gonna obviously we'll promote the hell out of the book we're um obviously we'll promote even the uh uh that documentary uh, as well uh, we'll try to figure out where it's going to be scheduled and all that kind of stuff um what else are you doing to promote the book um are you doing any personal appearances and and that kind of stuff is it um and um you know appearances and all that kind of stuff Yeah, yeah.
2: I've been having quite a few book signings Um, and it's been going pretty well. Been all over uh, from uh, New York to Baltimore, uh, L.A., San Francisco. Um, So we out there on the circuit just trying to continue to put it out there to let folks know it's available because we all need positive, positivity in our life. And I believe this is something that can really give these anyone some uh, confidence and belief that they can become whoever they want to be.
0: Well, I appreciate it. It's been an honor talking with you. And uh, you know that uh, our little corner of the world and all of our fans will be rooting for you to uh, ultimately uh, make that uh, that journey into the uh, Pro Basketball Hall of Fame. So let's let the crusade begin now. And uh, we'll be uh, we'll be we'll 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 be sure to call you back the minute that uh, that hopefully you get in. And um, uh, it's it's been wonderful talking to you. I appreciate you making time for me.
2: Uh, Tim, I really appreciate you having me on. Thanks a lot.
0: All right. You heard it from the man himself. Thank you, Muggsy. Uh, let's see. So many things that you can follow up with uh, to learn more about the uh, story uh, and the ongoing uh, doings of Muggsy Bogues. Uh, first and foremost is uh, the new book uh, by uh, Tyrone Mugsy Bogues. It's called Mugsy: My Life from a Kid and the Projects to the Godfather of Small Ball. Two forwards, not just one, two forwards by Steph Curry and Alonzo Mourning. And uh, the book is written in conjunction with uh, Jacob Udy. Uh, It is published by Triumph Books, and it is available wherever you find good books. You can find, of course, a convenient link to said book from our website at GoodSeatsStillAvailable.com. Just search up this episode, number 265, with Mugsy, and uh, there'll be a convenient link. You'll, uh, you will can click on the logo of the book or the, the, the dust jacket uh, image there or um, wherever, and by doing so, you'll give us a couple of uh, couple of nickels and dimes of referral love. We appreciate that. Uh, let's see, when you're online, you can also tool around over to Twitter and follow Muggsy at Muggsy Bogues. That's M-U-G-G-S-Y, capital B-O-G-U-E-S, all one word, at Muggsy Bogues. Um, the documentary you should find, I'm not exactly sure where you can find it, but it's out there. Uh, in various streaming forms. I know NBA TV plays it fairly often. It's called Muggsy Always Believe. I think it came out about five, six months ago. Really, really good. A a really good condensed story uh, of Muggsy's life and career and a whole lot on the uh, Charlotte Hornets, for sure. Um, The other one you want to find is called Charlotte Hornets, Where the Buzz Began. That's a little bit more uh, difficult to find. That's an NBA uh, Productions Uh, Film from, it must have been at least 15, 20 years ago. Uh, Regardless, all good stuff. And um, uh, what else? When you're um, tooling around online, you can follow us uh, on various social media. Uh, There's a uh, Facebook page devoted to us. You can find us on Instagram at Good Seats Still Available. And of course, most actively, I think, on Twitter at Good Seats Still. Uh, You want to send us some email? Please, by all means, go ahead. Hello at GoodSeatsStillAvailable.com. See, pretty simple. Uh, there's a weekly email newsletter we try to put out over each weekend to kind of give you a little bit of a head start on what each episode is going to be the, the coming week. Uh, just find uh, find the link conveniently somewhere there on our website. I can't, can't sort of describe to you where it is now, but just go to the website, why don't you? And you'll find it. And uh, what else? Jerry Payne, thank you for your uh, audio uh, wizardry this week. Thank you kindly. And uh, let's leave you with a little clip. We always like to kind of send you out uh, musically and um, a reminder uh, that uh, Muggsy uh, had a couple of um, significant standout uh, cameo uh, roles, uh, roles, uh, uh, activities, uh, uh, memories in the original Space Jam movie. Now, I'm not talking about the remake, but, um, you know, if you're a kid of the 90s or you uh, grow up as a Hoops fan, in the '90s, you can't not know uh, the, the the great uh, uh, and uh, I guess paradigm-shifting uh, film between animation and real life called Space Jam. Uh, and we're going to leave you with that Space Jam theme song. And um, we dare you to go look up the film, watch it again, and uh, check out Muggsy's scenes. He does steal the show when he's in it, as uh, he often did. Thanks very much for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care. Come on,